0: Well, good morning. Good morning, and happy uh, Chippery National Chippery Sunday. Um, it happens once a year. The jokes land a little better. You already are laughing at stuff that's only moderately humorous. So this is this is good because you know you get that extra hour. I uh, spoke. Um, I'm on the leadership team for something called the Regeneration Project, and I was pretty much busy doing that all day Friday and all day Saturday. It was a ton of work. It was a great event. Sold out. It was all, awesome in every possible way, but you're just you're, by the end of it, you're drained, and then I didn't connect the pieces, and someone yesterday mentioned to me, well, it's a good thing you're going to get an extra hour of sleep. And so I'm at the stage, man, I got a lot of kids, a lot of things going on, so that extra hour, it was just like, let's go, let's go, all right, I'm ready. So that's the first introductory note. Second introductory note, um, as you all know, we have uh, elections taking place all across this country and I would just encourage you to pray that God would grant us leaders who walk in wisdom and not folly. When uh, leaders who walk in wisdom and not folly are installed, this leads to human flourishing and not human suffering. And as a church, we believe all human beings are made in the image of God and so we wanna see image bearers flourish and not suffer. So. God grant us wisdom. Uh, Thirdly, uh, thirdly, today will be a little different in that um, we're gonna cover a lot of texts, 25 verses total. that's more than we usually do, and there's a reason for that, is we're looking at three stories that sort of inform each other, and you could look at them individually and come to conclusions and find the meaning of the text, but you're gonna get like the bigger picture and avoid some serious misinterpretations if you sort of are able to read them all together. So we're going to be going through a lot of texts and not stopping as much as we usually do along the way so that we can get them all together. Uh, And the reason for that is oftentimes, we can chop up the Bible into pieces where we're just looking at a small unit and not allowing the full context of the text to speak. And you can imagine, like, just think about movies, how when you see the the full set of movies, how that informs your understanding of something. So, for example, um, Darth Vader. Uh, If you just watched Empire Strikes Back, you go, Darth Vader is one bad dude. Like, that guy's evil, totally bad, corrupt, no good which is true, that's not wrong. But then if you watch Return of the Jedi, then you go, well, you know what? I didn't think that guy could be redeemed, but he could. Good old Luke Skywalker walked into the Death Star and saved his dad. And so you get that more like multi-dimensional picture and understanding of him. And then if you do all the work and you, you you wait 30 years for Phantom Menace to come out, and then you realize, bro, they took little kid Darth Vader from his mama when he was a little boy, he already didn't have a dad. He only had a mama, he's a li- they took him. The Jedi did him wrong, man, no wonder he's got anger issues. So then you kind of start to understand the multidimensional nature of the character. So likewise, today there are three stories and there's layers of context to these. Um, and today almost sort of functions as a, a quick class also in what we call biblical interpretation how to properly interpret the scriptures, and the, the main three tools of biblical interpretation, the joke is context, context, and context. Um, and so we're gonna look a little bit at historical context, literary context, and then something called canonical context, which you may not, it's a word that you may be unfamiliar with. When we, when we look at the Bible as a whole, as the authoritative scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, that's often called the canon the canon of Scripture. So canonical context means how does this this section fit in with the whole, the sum total of Scripture? So literary context, historical context, and canonical context. Matthew 18, verse 10 through 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay, so first off, some context. Who are the little ones? If you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've addressed this. Remember, Jesus pulls up a child when he's asked the question, who's the greatest? He pulls up a child and he's, he's like, here you go. You gotta be like one of these if you, if you wanna be great in the kingdom of God. And then we also looked at how Jesus was using a literal physical child in an analogy to communicate truths about people who are new to the faith. So the little children are sometimes literal children, but oftentimes they are children in the faith, or what we might, we might call like baby Christians. If you've been a Christian for six months, two weeks, or maybe a year, you're in a, a phase of Christianity where it's new to you, the faith is new. So in this sense, Jesus is talking about little ones in the faith, and he certainly means people who are new to the faith, new Christians, but he could also mean you, you know, children who are new to the faith. And then he, he has this weird line, and we have to address it, we're not gonna spend much time on here, but some of you are like, you're focused on it already. Because it's like, Um, I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. You're going like, what's up with that? And I'm glad it's National Chippery Sunday because I don't know the answer to that so you're gonna be left uh, unsatisfied. There's all kinds of debate and there's debate anywhere and I don't think this is the case but there's all the way from like these are guardian angels of children, all the way to, it's just a a metaphor saying that uh, people new to the faith are important to God. What I think is, is likely going on is that Jesus is hinting at there are, there's angels, there's, there's spiritual beings who are near to the throne of God that have special concern for the little ones. And what I mean by that is people new to the faith. So God has a heart and a concern for people who are new to the faith. And you get the reason for that in the main part of this text in the parable. This is the thrust of, of this first story. If a man with a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the other? And when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over the 99 that never went astray. So the idea is this, God has this tremendous heart for the little one that goes astray. And we as a church, as Christians, ought to reflect the heart of God. We have extra concerns for A, the literal ones, absolutely physical and literal, but two, also people who are new to the faith. You get easily confused. You'd be pulled astray. And this was a, an analogy that would have been absolutely understood by his hearers. Like we're, we're in a different type of culture, but they would all know, they go, oh yeah, totally. There's always that one sheep, you know? Runs off, runs on some crazy mountain. and Then we're all watching the shepherd, have to go get him hanging off the mountain cliff, reaching down, its gonna fall, the last time this happened, didn't work out good for the shepherd, type of thing. So they know this, and they know what it looks like to have a shepherd bring back the lost sheep. It's very familiar in their, in their mind, in their conceptual world. And Jesus says, this is, this is the heart of God. And so the practical application of this is that when there is someone in the discipleship community, in the church, in the people of God, who is getting off the path, being tempted to get off the path that the shepherd has them on, the church ought to care about that immensely. It's of incredible importance. Now keep all of this in your mind as we transition to the second story. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, now. Keep in mind the story we just heard because the next two slides are going to be filled with verses that have historically been misinterpreted because they've been removed from the context of the story that's before it and after it. And I promise you, don't no one feel bad because probably all of us have, by the end of this, you're going to go, well, I always use that Bible verse wrong. Um, it's like universal, it's, it's, everyone does this, so don't feel bad. Well, let's dig in. Okay, so first off, there's this thing, if your brother sins, a couple points on that. Um, The the Greek here is difficult and there's some some evidence that can go both ways, but there's debate about if this is saying, if your brother sins against you or if your brother sins in general. And so there's some principles laid out on what to do if your brother sins, but the question is, is, does this only apply to if he sins against me or if it's done in the general sense? And I think the actually overwhelming evidence is that we're talking about sin in general. It doesn't have to be against you in particular, but certainly principles established here ought to apply for maybe if there was some type of issue regarding a fight with you and another believer. Now this phrase, if your brother sins, is important because we're talking about people who belong to the family of faith. So this is in the church world. This is how you deal with divisions and issues and sin problems between believers. If there is a man or a woman in a sin issue in the family of God, Jesus is about to lay out principles for confrontation and what we would call church discipline. So if, if your brother, and brother is a general term, so, so ladies, don't think, you don't have to abide by any of this. It's, it's, this is how the language of the Bible works. It applies to everybody. If your brother sins, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now remember the story we just listened to. It's about a sheep going off the path and going to try to rescue him. So there's some sin issue in a person in the family of God. And what is a believer supposed to do? They are to go and warn them. You're getting off the path. And this is done in gentleness with the intent of restoration and reconciliation. This isn't like, oh man, gotcha, see you sinning, man, I got three steps I gotta follow, starting one, I'm excited about it. It's a, it's a pleading, it's a gentle. just it's, it's, no, you're getting off track and you confront them. So let's say there's someone, um, they're lying, they're lying, they got an issue with lying. You know, you hear them talking to their bros and they're like, yeah, I'm putting up, you know, like 225 on the bench. You're like, bro, I go to the same gym as you. You're like at 135, and I see what you're, you ain't even bringing the bar down to your chest. You just dip like two inches. You're doing this. You're one of those dudes. He ain't coming down all the way, not even the full stretch. You know, they got a lying issue. They, they, hey, you got an anger problem. I've noticed this about you. This, This doesn't get better. Like if you don't address your anger, it will grow and grow and grow. You need to deal with this. I'm warning you about, I'm seeing lying. I'm seeing, you're about to buy a chihuahua thinking it's a good idea. <laughs> I got Matthew 18, man, I'm supposed to approach you about this, this sin issue. So what's the goal here though? Is that you point out some, some type of issue and then the person goes, you know what, you're right, um, I'm gonna confess this, we're gonna pray about this, I'm gonna work on my anger issues. Then done deal, you've done your job. Step two, though, is let's say they go, get out of here, man, I don't have to listen to you. Then there's a second step, verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now you're gonna take a couple other Christians with love and concern and gentleness and kindness and try to restore the sheep that's gone off the path. No, look, we're pleading with you. Like, you're living a lifestyle that is, it ends in destruction. Do you feel that, you ever ever been confronted and you can feel the difference when someone is for you or against you? Do you know that? Like, someone could be saying the exact same thing, but if you feel they're against you, you don't receive it. So this is a, repent of this. This path you're on, it goes to destruction. We love you. We are your brothers and sisters in the faith. Come back. And if they repent, there's there's prayer and repentance and reconciliation, all that, and then your job's done. But if that doesn't happen, verse 17, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's say there's someone who is, in an extramarital affair. They're cheating on their spouse. They've been married 20 years, they've got kids, and you bring this up, there's no repentance. Then you bring a couple others up, and there's no repentance. Then it comes to the church leadership, and the church leadership addresses it with that person with the hopes of repentance The scriptures are clear that when someone is in grave sin and there is no heart of repentance, there is no care to improve, there's nothing like that. The church has to draw lines. One of the things you have to understand is it's hard in our culture because people like to to be negative towards the church. But to come in to be a part of the family of God in the household of faith, to come in fellowship, to come and take communion and sing with others in faith, that's that's a blessing. And so what the church has historically done is if there is someone in grave sin and they refuse to repent, you cut off the blessings of that fellowship. You don't just get to come into church and be a hypocrite and act like it's all good. We're not letting you treat your wife like this. We're not putting up with this. We're not gonna turn a blind eye to it. It's not allowed. And so there's these steps that are taken all with the intent to restore and to reconcile, but you have to understand there's a point where you have to draw lines. And we're gonna see in a moment there's a reason for that. There's an important reason for that. But a couple other important notes on here. When people often read this, well, they go, you know what, we're all sinners, so how am I ever gonna address a sin issue with them? I mean, we're all, you know, everyone's gonna get kicked out of the church. We're, yes, we're all sinners, um, but we are talking about grave sins that are in defiance of God's clear command with zero repentance and zero care or concern to improve. So if you're here today and, you, and you're struggling with certain sins, there's a difference between struggling with sin and defying God. And rejoicing in that, like in pure defiance and disregard of all of God's truth. Do you feel the difference between that? Like you have things in your life, man, Lord, help me on this. Th- there's a difference from that. And there's a difference in the type of, type of sin. Like there's a clear difference between if you bought the chihuahua and, and serious sin. What, what Jesus is addressing and what the church has historically done with this is there are grave and serious sins that have to be checked. And if someone refuses to repent, then lines have to be drawn. The other thing I want to note is that this verse has often been abused in situations where it should not be applied. So let's say someone has done something grave, wrong, sinful, and you are a victim and you're in a situation where someone is more powerful than you. You don't keep that quiet and just address it with the person. You go to proper authorities immediately and deal with it. This isn't some type of thing to keep people who are hurting in a a state of victimhood quiet. These are issues that the church can address when sin arises. And so whenever you look at this text, you have to use wisdom and discernment to get the principles here. They are principles for reconciliation and restoration. When there's deep sin that people aren't caring about, the church addresses it. We don't turn a blind eye. You know, and unfortunately oftentimes that happens. Some of us, I mean, I know as a pastor, I've heard stories where some of you grew up in households where you wish the church addressed the issues in your family in love and gentleness rather than acting like it was all good. So Jesus gives us these, these principles. Now he goes on to say these three verses, and each one of these three verses are often read independent of what we just read. And when you read them independently of what we just read, they can sound like they mean something way different. And this is where we've all used the Bible in the wrong way. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, you might have not all heard something like this, but I have, sometimes people will use this verse and say things like, I'll give you a really bad example. Lord, we know that whatever we bind on earth is is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Therefore, Lord, we pray in agreement, two or three are gathered in Jesus' name that you loose the financial blessings of heaven upon us. And the intent of that is like you're claiming this authority to loose some type of storehouse of earthly treasure in heaven and bring it upon you. And so that's not what this is talking about. From here on out, Chippery Sunday just goes down. The historical context is important. What does binding and loosening mean in first century Jewish culture? That has to do with rabbinical decisions that dealt with declaring sins either forbidden or permissible. So you follow this. In historical context, this binding and loosing deals with an authoritative judgment that says this is either permissible or forbidden. Now, what does that mean in context to what we just read? When the church is making tough decisions regarding church discipline and sin issues, Jesus is saying the church has the authority backed by heaven that when using God's word empowered by his spirit, they can say to a person, you can't do this, that is forbidden. Or you can say, we see your repentance, we see the change, this is forgiven. Now understand the power of this, this is incredible. Who can forgive sins? God alone, right? However, if someone comes to you and they say, I've confessed these sins, I want help to to grow in this area, I want to bring change to my life, you as a believer can tell that person, your sins are forgiven, you've been forgiven. God doesn't hold that against you and you're not doing it because you have the authority to do so. You're doing so because you're using the guidelines that God has given you in scripture and just declaring over that person what God has declared happens in heaven when someone repents. It's very good news to tell another human being who's overwhelmed with the guilty conscience. God loves you. He's forgiven you. Because of what Christ done on his cross, there's a path for forgiveness. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two were if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, this is one of those ones that's always removed, right? Like when you hear this verse, don't you know the scriptures say where two or three are, 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 are gathered and they agree? Then, man, God's gonna do it. And if you were wise when you first heard that, like when you were a kid in Sunday school, hey, Billy, come here. We don't even need three, bro. It's it's two. What you want for Christmas, man? I'm gonna you do I'm gonna pray for you, and then you're gonna pray for me for Christmas presents, man. We're gonna we're gonna work this out, okay? And sometimes, you know, your own personal experience is like, Lord, I did that. And it seems as if you you didn't answer. And so certainly there is power in prayer. Certainly there is power of agreement when people come together in Jesus' name. I'm not denying any of that. But what I'm saying is if you look at this in context to everything we just said, we are talking about the issue of decisions in the church regarding sin. And Jesus is using this language of two witnesses or two or three witnesses, not out of thin air. This whole type of language and system is all developed in the Old Testament his hearers will be hearing the Old Testament resonant frequencies. They know, they know about decisions and judgments and this law court setting and about coming together in agreement and passing judgments. They know about that. Listen to Deuteronomy. Way back in the Old Testament, how do you deal with an issue? Deuteronomy 19:15 through 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord." Keep that in mind, this will be important for later. Both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness in a false witness has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So what's going on? There's there's issues. There's like some type of crime or something that's been committed. And Deuteronomy outlines the process. You need two or three witnesses. You confront it, and then what do you do? You bring it to the judges and the priests. But when you bring it to the judges and the priests, who also are you bringing it to, according to Deuteronomy? God, the Lord. And they're gonna make judgments on this matter. They're gonna bring justice to this matter. And then it says, this, this verse that, um, because we're, just, we're so weird in the modern world, it sounds like scary and bad, but it's actually good. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. We're talking about dealing with picture and an infection in your like big toe. If you don't deal with that infection, it can grow, right? And it can grow and grow. And back in the day before modern medicine, that may grow. And now, now what are you doing? You're having to chop off your leg. You could have dealt with a tiny infection or maybe just chopped off your big toe or you could have let that groan and now you're in a situation where that infection is really bad. So the court in, in Israel in Deuteronomy is trying to say, we don't want things to get out of control. So it's out of love and concern for the community that you address issues and deal with them. Now bring all of that from the Old Testament into what we've been reading. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose to heaven. in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two... "'of you agree on earth about anything they ask, "'it will be done for them by my Father in heaven.'" And then verse 20, "'For where two or three are gathered "'in my name, there I am among them.'" Now, this, this last verse is what is historically been used um, not in a wrong manner, but just it's, a, it's, it's not quite the same nuance that it, it has right here. So, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If you've been going to church a long time, when do you normally hear this verse? There's like a ministry event and n- n- kind of underperforms. You were hope, you had this, this ministry night, you had a prayer night and you're hoping 30 people come out. There's four. And immediately, the person in charge wanting to encourage everybody, right? Hey, what does the word of God say? Where two or three are gathered, God's there. So it doesn't matter if there's 40 or four. Now that's true, that's true. But you also automatically know that what if I just by myself pray in Jesus' name? Is God in some sense not there? No, Jesus says for the believer, he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. So God is omnipresent, He's everywhere. You can't run from His Spirit. So what's going on? Jesus is saying that He is uniquely present in the activities of the church. Jesus is uniquely present when God's people gather and in this section, it's talking about church discipline. But I'm sure that applies to other other things as well. Jesus is uniquely present today with us. The Spirit of Jesus is uniquely present with us today. We're gonna do worship together, As the corporate family of God, we are going to pray, we're going to take communion. So he's always with you, but there's ways in which he can be uniquely present in certain activities. And what Matthew 18 is outlining is when the church is in this process, Jesus is there. In Deuteronomy, when the priest and the judges gather to make judgment, who was there? So do you see what Jesus is saying? Who's there now? Jesus says, I'm there. It's like, there's a lot more going on than just Jesus is gonna show up at your prayer meeting. Jesus is claiming to be somebody. He's the one claiming to have authority in heaven to back the church on earth. It's very powerful. And now he switches to the last thing, this story that is again, often read independently, but you have to understand this in light of these first two sections. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I?" How, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Uh, one bit of historical context is there was a tradition at the day that said three times. So when Peter says seven, he's likely coming like, I know everyone teaches three, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna impress. Look at how gracious and generous my forgiveness is. Lord, should we... Should we forgive seven times? No, 77 times. And there's also debate because people, people debate, it's difficult to see, is it 77 times or is it possibly 70 times seven, so 490 times? And it's like, go ahead and debate that, but you're missing the point. Seven is a number of wholeness and completion, right? And so Jesus say, by Jesus saying 70, he's like saying super forgiveness. He's saying you ought to have a posture that desires to continually forgive, right? Now, again, put this in context because you can just sit there and go, no, Christians ought to continually forgive and, and never draw lines in the sand with sin. That's not what's taking place. We just got done talking about an outline for church discipline, but Keeping that in mind, the posture of the believer is one to extend forgiveness as much as possible. And now Jesus is gonna give us the reason why. Because there's a reason. We don't just wanna be forgiving people because it's a nice thing. There's a reason. And Jesus gives us the reason in a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And, he could, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. Okay, so we're in a parable and Jesus starts telling a story. There's a king, a leader, and he has this servant and he owes him 10,000 talents. Now, when we read this, for the most part, we go, okay, I get it. There's this guy who owes a lot of money. He has a big debt, and he can't pay it back, and he's about to be punished, but then he falls on his knees, asks for time to repay, and you know, the, the king, the master's generous, and he forgives him. But you got to understand something. How much did this guy owe? What does it say? 10,000 talents. Now, it's easy just to read that and go on. But you need to know that 10,000 talents is roughly 60 to 100 million denarii. You need to know that a denari is a day's wage. So he owes roughly 60 to 100 million days wages. Now, put this into context, the combined annual tribute to Herod in all of Galilee was less than 200 talents. So how much money does the guy owe? This is an, an ancient Near Eastern way of saying a whole lot. <laughs> this is like more money that's in, like it's, there's not even that in the whole kingdom. In all of the circulation in Galilee, there doesn't exist 10,000 talents. So he owes like an infinite amount. And then the guy has the audacity to say, right? What does he do? Lord, just give me time, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. It's like, are you, you can't pay that back. He's lying, he can't pay it back. Nevertheless, even though he owes a debt he cannot pay back, the king forgives him. And then it goes on. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the guy that just got forgiven of a billion, trillion, zillion dollars, finds a dude who owes 10 bucks, chokes him and throws him in prison for not paying him back. When his fellow servants, the the other guys who worked for the king, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now you see how all of these things, three things connect. Like you could just take out one verse, whatever you bind in heaven, you know, bound on earth, loose in heaven, loose on earth. But wait a second, we're talking about sheep who gets off the path and God desiring to bring that person back he's the good shepherd who goes after the lost one and does whatever he can to restore that person and then in the middle section there's this idea with well how is the church in a practical sense because that's a nice analogy but how does the church practically do that you go to the sheep and you try to bring them back and then you go with two or three other people and try to bring them back and then you get church leadership and you try to bring them back but if he doesn't want to come back there's nothing you could do at that point and then there's a grounding for all of them. Why, why does the church try so hard to restore people? Why do we go out and seek the lost sheep? Why is, this, why is this like the mission? Why is that so important? Because you owed 10,000 talents. And the king forgave you. Now, put the pieces together in this story. It's called Debt. Let the reader understand. Our Father who lives in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What what happens in that prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's the heart and mission of God. It's in the Lord's prayer. We are a people who have received forgiveness from a debt that we could never pay back. Give me time, I'll become a better person. Give me time, man, I'll, I'll pay it back. Give me time, I'll do some good things. You could not pay your debt. It was forgiven. And because you have received the abundance of for- forgiveness, then there's a posture that says, Lord, let your forgiveness flow into me and flow out into the world. That never means turning a blind eye to wickedness. Now, why? Because. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how causing people to to stumble, causing little ones to stumble, is great danger because it increases wickedness. So sometimes the infection has to be dealt with. And so you address certain issues. And some of you know this, right? You started dabbling in some certain sin and you thought it was no big deal and then five years later, you're completely sucked into it. How How many have that in our story? How many of us know people right now that someone started messing with something that was just, ah, this here, and then pretty soon, it takes over. So the church tries to address things before it gets out of control. So in this passage, Jesus gives us the rules for reconciliation and restoration. In one sense, it's like, it's deep and complicated, but in another sense, it's pretty practical, right? Love people, when you see them getting off course, do everything you can to get them back on the right path. And no, sometimes you just have to say this is, we can't go on this way. We're not gonna fake like this is cool. You know what I mean? And why do we do all of this? It's not done to look down upon people. It's not done to slander anyone's name, right? Because what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do it quietly, address the person one-on-one. In other words, the intent isn't to like get news about this person, everyone. It's to quietly and gently restore someone. We all had a debt, like 10,000 talents strong. Sometimes we might have convinced ourselves we'd be able to pay it back. Some of you, today, might be trying to convince yourself you can pay it back. You can't pay it back. It has to be forgiven, has to be forgiven. You'll never be able to pay it back. And God, who is rich in mercy, is the good king who forgives anyone and everyone who would say, I can't pay it back, have mercy on me, Lord have mercy on me, I can't pay it back. And he brings reconciliation and restoration. And our Lord taught us all of these principles in the Lord's Prayer. We are people who have received forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us. Now, the way that gets difficult is, asking God to work on your heart because there's different degrees of forgiveness. There's different types of wrongs we've experienced. So I'm not saying like all these great hurts in your life, you've heard a sermon now and she'll go forgive. Like you gotta ask God to work on your heart. Cause remember what it says, if you gotta forgive them in your heart, that takes the work of the spirit. And sometimes that takes the miraculous work of the spirit. But there's a process for this in the rules and the rules for reconciliation and restoration. So we're gonna take communion And before we do that, I just want us to focus on this. We all had this debt that we could not pay. You couldn't pay it. Someone tried to do the math of 10,000 talents and like how much that would actually weigh in silver. And I forget the actual numbers, but it was like, it's a line of 6,000 soldiers carrying a bag of five pounds each. Like, you just can't do it. What great news it would be if you owed, think of it in financial terms. (laughs) What great news it would be if you owed a million dollars. And, you know, the great people at the credit card company (laughs) called you up and said, you know, the CEO's in a good move. Your debt's erased. How good would you feel? Great, right? Brothers and sisters. Your 10,000 talents has been forgiven. God doesn't hold you to it anymore. And more than that, he's invited you to his family and his table. He's brought you in by the blood of his son. So let's stand as we take communion. (laughs) On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. It's given so that our debts might be paid. And so Lord, we remember what you did on our behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood that he shed on our behalf. And so Lord, we give you our allegiance. Now that we've been forgiven of all of our debts, all of our sins, we wanna be faithful servants. We wanna serve you faithfully until the very end, so we commit to you this day. So Father God, we recognize you are generous, you are rich in mercy, abundant in your grace, and we are thankful that we can come to you and our sins, not, they're not held against us. We're forgiven, we're free. And so help us be like little children who run to their father, they don't doubt his embrace, they don't fear his embrace, but we would boldly go into the throne of God knowing that you love us and there's nothing that can separate us from that love. We turn now to worship your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.